Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, September 23rd, 2022. It's been 3,128 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 212 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, there is significant fog of war, but we are seeing parallels in Russian social media chatter to September 1st through 5th during the ramp-up to the Ukrainian Kharkiv counteroffensive. Second, the loss of Russian Major General Oleg Tsokov, commander of the 144th Motorized Rifle Division of the 20th Combined Arms Army, couldn't come at a worse time, with Russian troops attempting to assemble a defense of eastern Kharkiv and northern Luhansk. Third, our assessment was accurate that the Russian Ministry of Defense would end the Donetsk People's Republic militia's attempt to encircle Avdiivka when it suited their interests and would mobilize the troops to other fronts. Fourth, we maintain Russia's partial mobilization of now up to one million reservists, will not significantly impact the trajectory of the war in Ukraine through the medium term because of winter weather, poor equipment, training, command, and morale, and the well-known realities of the war in Ukraine among Russian veterans. Fifth, our assessment that partial mobilization will make it far more difficult to control the internal narrative within Russia was accurate, with stunned Russian citizens being mobilized despite not having prior military experience. Sixth, The broader mobilization and breaking of the social contract with the Russian people has further increased the risk that, if the Kremlin cannot stabilize the situation in Ukraine, the Putin regime will face a political upheaval that could result in government changes. Seventh, we maintain there is a risk of getting trapped in the mutually assured destruction-instability paradox due to continued threatening language from the Kremlin on the use of nuclear weapons. Eighth, We maintain the sham referendums will not change the tactics or strategy of Ukraine or its Western supporters. However, Western nuclear powers have stated they've been forced to take Russia's nuclear threats seriously. Ninth, we maintain the continued Russian offensive on Bakhmut Solidar is pointless and will not provide a tactical or strategic victory. Tenth, We maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and conditions, forces will seek to surrender. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed, 
and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing collapse. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Neither Russian nor Ukrainian sources provided specific reports on kinetic warfare in Kherson. Reading between the lines of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reports, there were no changes to the Inulets River bridgehead or the line of conflict in northern Kherson. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Ukrainian Air Force completed 13 airstrikes and ground forces launched 280 fire missions. Russian command and control centers in Bereslav and Novokhovka were attacked, and an ammunition depot in Bereslav was destroyed. A Russian convoy attempting to cross the partially repaired Kakhovka Dam bridge was attacked, as was a pontoon bridge in Russian-occupied Lvov. The Ukrainian Air Force reported they shot down four Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 loitering drones in the Mykolaiv area. On the Black Sea coast, Ochakiv was attacked for the third day in a row by smirch rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. There were no reports of significant damage or injuries. For some unknown reason, the Russian Ministry of Defense is obsessed with the idea that Ukraine will attempt an amphibious landing on the Kinburn Spit, which may be the motivation to attack the southern Mykolaiv coastal regions. Our assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. We recapped it on Monday's episode around minute three. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. Good news, the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has stabilized again. In New York, International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi reported significant progress was made in creating a framework for establishing a demilitarized zone around the plant during side meetings at the United Nations. French President Emmanuel Macron hosted an event in New York to discuss the safety and security of civilian nuclear facilities in armed conflicts. It was also attended by Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shamil, European Union High Representative for Foreign Affairs Josep Borrell, and senior officials from several countries. Nine countries signed a statement supporting the development of a nuclear safety and protection zone around ZNPP. Director General Grossi also met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his Ukrainian counterpart Dmitry Kuleba in separate meetings to reach an agreement on demilitarizing the plant. Nikopol and Markhanets were hit by 30 grad rockets fired by MLRS, knocking out power and destroying several homes. There is more information in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Oleksandr Staruk, Zaporizhia Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported that up to 10 Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for ground attacks struck the city. The missiles reportedly targeted civilian infrastructure, and the scope of the damage was unknown at the time of recording. Some assessment here. With the ongoing counteroffensive in Kherson and the successful suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense efforts by the Ukrainian Air Force, Russia appears to have set its sight on terrorizing the city of Zaporizhia. The near-total reliance on S-300 anti-aircraft missiles in a ground-attack role indicates that Russia has likely consumed its supply of Iskander-M and caliber cruise missiles 
holding its remaining supply in strategic reserve. Also noteworthy is the lack of KH-102 and KH-59 strikes. This could be due to the supply of the Cold War-era air-to-sea missiles being consumed or caused by a decline in the number of combat missions flown by the Russian Air Force. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Fighting is ongoing in certain areas, but there has been a request to maintain operational security. There are indications within the social intelligence sphere that Ukrainian forces are advancing along the front. Ukrainians suppress and destroy enemy air defense activity restarted after a one-day lull. The fuel supply issues that hit Donetsk last week are rippling through the supply and logistics chain, with Russian forces reporting fuel issues. Otherwise, there was only very sporadic artillery fire along the line of conflict from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orihiv to Mali-Shirbaki. In southwest Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR militia, did not report any offensive operations and did not release videos from recent combat. There was more activity west of Donetsk, but only reconnaissance in force and positional fighting. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, attempted an advance on Kamyanka, which was unsuccessful. There was positional fighting on the eastern edge of Avdivka and north of the Donetsk International Airport near Optin. Pro-Russian accounts reported positional fighting near Vodyana, Pervomaisky, and Piski. Don't worry, we're not changing the state of control for Piski. The fighting was south of the village near the E-50 ring road. Positional battles east of Novomikhailivka entered the fifth day, with the DNR still finding no success. Alexei Arstovich claims the reduced operational tempo west of Donetsk is because the Russian Ministry of Defense has redeployed troops to the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Some assessment here. We had previously assessed that as the number of available light infantry troops collapsed, the Russian Ministry of Defense would end the attempt to encircle Avdivka for the second time and pull resources to other fronts. We are not at all surprised by the decision, which was militarily sound, right up to the point that they were sent to Bakhmut. A train loaded with Russian T-62 tanks and supporting ammunition, manufactured before most people listening to this were born, pulled into the massive railroad yards in Yazunovata. A few minutes later, the tanks, ammunition, and railroad yard had a close encounter of the worst kind, with rockets fired by HIMARS. A large plume of smoke rose over the railroad yard. Two explosions tore through Russian-occupied Melitopol. The first blast tore through a uniform shop, killing up to six Russian soldiers. The second was in the central district, in a nine-story apartment building killing one person and injuring another, according to Mayor of Melitopol Ivan Fedorov. In the Bakhmut area, there weren't any reports of fighting in Solidar, Bakhmutska, or Bakhmut from either belligerent. Russian sources claim Ukraine blew up a bridge in Bakhmut as part of a withdrawal, while Ukraine accused Russia of blowing up the bridge in an attempt to cut off troops defending the eastern part of the city. Private military company or PMC Wagner Group may be on a pause for resupply and reconstitution 
with no reported combat activity west of Kodema. The Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat attempted once again to advance into Zaitseve. There was no rejoicing, and not a single TikTok was made. Some assessment here. We maintain this is a pointless offensive and a waste of military resources for the Russians. Ending fighting in this region won't free up Ukrainian troops, who will have to maintain defensive lines. Russian forces have no remaining goal beyond the direct order of Russian President Vladimir Putin to secure the Donbass. Russian forces are desperately needed in other axes where, objectively speaking, PMC Wagner could have a meaningful impact. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, the situation for Russian forces in Lehman has deteriorated significantly in the last 24 hours. Pro-Russian sources reported that Ukrainian troops broke through the defensive lines to the north, advancing to Karpivka and pushing to the edge of Rydkodub. The sources claim that the advance came from Lozov, which is highly unlikely. Rubtsi is contested, and if Russian forces have lost control of Lozov, then Ukrainian troops are advancing north toward Pisky-Radkivsky and the critical Russian defensive point of Borova. If this was the case, we believe that both Ukrainian and Russian sources would be sharing the breakthrough. We believe if a breakthrough has happened, it will be launched from the recently liberated village of Koroviyar. There is a ground line of communication called a G-lock, that's a supply line, that runs east to Karpivka. Ukrainian forces have also advanced into the forested region between Liman and Yampil, driving a wedge between the two towns and putting pressure on Zarych. We have maintained that Ukrainian forces will not make a direct attack on Lehman, but will instead press for encirclement. In the evening, Russian sources started to walk back the claims of a breakthrough, saying Ukraine had been pushed back through Lozov, which is an easy claim because there is no evidence Ukraine advanced through the town in the first place. Within Lehman, a video showed that the railroad yards were hit by artillery and on fire providing the first evidence that shelling was happening within the city. The same organization celebrating the carpet bombing of Lehman in May and the use of TOS-1 thermobaric weapons in the center of the city is now calling the shelling of the railroad yard a, quote, vile and unprincipled terrorist attack by, quote, Kiev Nazis. Take all the time you need to make that make sense. Social media reports claim that Russian troops in Dobrysheve are surrounded. We can't confirm the veracity of the report made by the terrorist organization, the Imperial Legion. No, seriously, we wrote about this in July. The Imperial Legion is fighting for Russia and they are a declared terrorist organization by multiple nations. If this report is accurate, this indicates that Ukrainian troops have pressed south and east from Koroviyar and would have advanced through Shandreholov. It would also mean Ukrainian troops moving north through the forests between Yampil and Lehman have reached Stavki. Adding to the fog of war, PMC Wagner Channel Grey Zone, quoting the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, claims that the counteroffensive that started on September 6th is out of its operational pause, with heavy fighting on the edges of the Luhansk Oblast. There is little evidence to support any of these claims at the time of recording. Still, after the information storm in the hours before the start of the Kharkiv counteroffensive, 
we're hesitant to completely dismiss the chatter. Russian and Ukrainian sources both reported that Russian Major General Oleg Tsokov, commander of the 144th Motorized Rifle Division of the 20th Combined Arms Army, was severely wounded in a HIMARS attack on September 20th in Svatov. Tsokov has been withdrawn from Ukraine to receive medical treatment. Some assessment here. Because Russia's command structure is from the top down with a weak NCO corps, this is a devastating loss from a timing standpoint. Prior losses or change of command in senior leadership has caused operational pauses of three to ten days. Ukraine now has three confirmed wet crossings over the Oskil River and likely a fourth. Russian forces don't have three hours, let alone three days, to restructure the chain of command. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, Russian sources that had been denying Ukraine had established bridgeheads over the Oskil admitted that Ukraine had crossed the river in three locations and possibly a fourth. Ukrainian forces crossed at Dovorichna and were pushing through Ryanikivka to Tavizhanka. The GSAFU reported fighting for Kupiansk, which means Ukraine is across the river. There were reliable reports that Ukrainian troops had already pushed south in the direction of Kurilivka. Pro-Russian accounts claim that Ukraine's special operation forces are using a pedestrian bridge near Senkov to cross the Oskil. Russia attacked the Pechany Reservoir for the fourth time, striking the dam and the surrounding area with S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. The attack did not cause significant damage. In the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Shalakhin, Velika Pisarivka, Bilopilia, Krasnopilia, Snobnovhorodsk, Esmen, Khotin, Yunakivka, Seredina Buda, and Miropilia were attacked by Russian troops stationed over the international border. Over 130 artillery shells and grad rockets fired from MLRS struck a wide area of the oblast, wounding four and damaging businesses, two schools, a community hall, and killing livestock. On the Russian front in Duvoluchno, an S-300 anti-aircraft missile fired by Russia failed mid-flight and crashed into the village. The missile struck an area of sandy soil, creating a massive impact crater. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In absentia, former Ukrainian Major General Oleksandr Treshyak was sentenced to five years in prison for calling to seize state power in 2015, when he was filmed in Russian-occupied Donetsk calling for the end of the Ukrainian government and to fight, quote, by all means possible, end quote. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that Germany should decide independently on whether to transfer the main battle tanks, or MBTs, to Ukraine or not. Germany has said they have blocked the transfer of Leopard 1 tanks due to an agreement among Western allies not to provide heavy armor, lest they make Putin angry. 
He might do something wild like mobilize up to one million troops and threaten the world with nuclear weapons if Ukraine were to get Leopard 1 tanks. Just kidding, he already did that. Ukraine has stated they weren't interested in American M1A1 Abrams MBTs because of their size and weight. The Pentagon has also been reluctant to provide the tanks because of the complicated systems, turbine engines, and fuel demands. The German Leopard 1 is considered highly capable and more modern than the bread-and-butter T-72 tanks Russia and Ukraine are currently using. The Leopard has a diesel engine instead of a turbine and would represent an easier transition for Ukrainian troops. Ukraine and France are working on a new arms package that would include more Caesar self-propelled 155mm howitzers, or SPGs. France has already provided 25% of its SPGs to Ukraine. Italian Minister of Defense Lorenzo Guerini visited President Zelensky in Kyiv for the first time since the start of the war. Guerini visited Hostomel as part of his visit and said he would discuss with his government ways to provide Ukraine with more military aid. Ukraine, Poland, and the United Kingdom discussed creating a tripartite alliance to fight against Russian aggression. The meeting was held at the United Nations in New York. In a statement, the trio of nations, quote, condemned the further mobilization of forces in Russia, which only rejects the possibility of establishing peace, end quote. The UK and Poland pledged unwavering support for Ukraine, establishing a long-term security program after the war, and developing the defense capabilities of the three nations and on NATO's eastern flank. Russian forces lost two helicopters today with visual confirmation through video. A Russian Ka-52 alligator attack helicopter and an Mi-8 multi-role helicopter were shot down in separate incidents. CNN reported that two sources within Western intelligence claim that Vladimir Putin has taken direct command of the, quote, special military operation. Intercepted communications revealed that Russian officers are arguing amongst themselves on tactics, strategies, and resources, and complaining about the decision-making process in Moscow. Like other nationalists throughout history that have taken over military decision-making, President Putin has no prior military experience. Speaking of military experience, let's talk about Russian mobilization. A previously unpublished paragraph in Putin's decree for, quote, partial mobilization indicates the decision is closer to full mobilization. Paragraph 7 calls for adding up to one million soldiers to the Russian army. Less than 36 hours after his speech, it was becoming clear that the social contract made with the Russian people wasn't worth the paper it was written on. The commissariat removed Buryat University students with no prior military training or experience from their classrooms, marching them straight to awaiting buses. Employees of Gazprom, the backbone of Russia's energy industry and the primary source of tax revenue for Moscow, were served with conscription notices. Managers later shared that employees were given a 12-month deferment, but not immunity. Employees at Krunichev State Space Research and Production Center in Moscow, who currently work in war production and research and development, were also given conscription notices, including those without prior military experience. In Moscow, a man with no prior experience and previously rated, quote, limitedly fit for service, showed his mobilization papers. 
Videos showed hundreds, if not thousands, of Russians already mobilizing and moving to military training. The first thing the newly mobilized were being told in briefings was the criminal penalties for desertion and surrender, and the second was how to use a tourniquet on themselves because most deaths in the field have occurred due to blood loss. In eastern and central Russia and among ethnic enclaves, there are reports that conscription notices were handed out to 25 to 90 percent of the men in villages. The oldest residents that remember the darkest days of World War II said history was repeating, with towns occupied only by women and children. The Kremlin has repeatedly been accused of racism and over-relying on ethnic minorities to fight in Ukraine, while sheltering the residents of St. Petersburg, Moscow, and other wealthy federal districts. Major general and aspiring dentist Don Don Ramzan Kadyrov told the Chechen people there would be no mobilization because the republic was already 254% over quota, with 20,000 soldiers already taken part in the special military operation. Quick editor's note, if Dandan Kadyrov thinks this is a flex, he is mistaken. Chechen forces were invisible in Ukraine for almost two months after the siege of Severodonetsk, where their casualties were reported as catastrophic. As a weird morale boost for Chechen troops, Kadyrov claimed that the male relatives of 40 women who engaged in anti-mobilization protest in Grozny were already in Ukraine. And we all know how effective untrained, unmotivated fighters with no respect for their commanders are. In Dagestan, protests broke out with people shouting at the commissariat that the special military operation was not about protecting the country, but about politics. Russian men were fleeing in any way and in any possible direction they could to avoid mobilization. On the borders of Mongolia and Kazakhstan, the checkpoints from Russia had 12-hour waits. A flight tracking app showed a flood of commercial flights departing Moscow to nations that don't require a visa for Russian travelers. Ideas were shared on social media on how to avoid or delay mobilization, including a spike in searches on how to break your hand and how to break your arm. Others pointed out that people born before 1991 can claim citizenship in Kyrgyzstan while still retaining their right to work and live in Russia. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, claimed that Russian officials were going door-to-door as part of the sham annexation referendum to gather votes. After men in the household vote, they are taken away to be forcibly conscripted regardless of age or medical conditions. Russian mill blogger Alexander Kotz did not consider the mobilization a good situation and revealed that some Russian motor infantry brigades were down to 60 infantrymen. He wrote, quote, It's not just about losses, end quote. The issue goes beyond killed and wounded in action, but includes desertion and insubordination. Kotz concluded, quote, Someone simply had no motivation. Why die for a foreign land? End quote. The lack of motivation might be understandable, looking at how new units arriving in Ukraine are equipped. Pictures in the Donbass showed new troops armed with Mosin Nagant rifles with five round clips, the same rifles their great grandfathers and grandfathers used in World War II. As we had previously reported, some soldiers weren't even equipped with firearms. Mykhailo Podoliak, the advisor to the office of the president of Ukraine, 
urged mobilized soldiers to surrender at the first opportunity. He said that Ukraine guarantees their lives, and those who surrender without fighting will not be forced to return to Russia at the end of the war. Ukrainian military expert Petro Chernik cautioned on dismissing the mobilization as a clown show in a clown car led by a clown driving at 200 miles per hour toward a cliff. Okay, he didn't use those words, we did. But he did, in so many words, channel Sun Tzu's art of war with a never-underestimate-your-enemy warning. Chernik did actually say in an interview, quote, We try to look at them through the prism of training our soldier, who is of value for us. But in Russia, there is a different philosophy of attitude towards a soldier. For them, he is meat who will serve a maximum of three battles and die. If a soldier, even an alcoholic, he still will be able to pick up a machine gun, two grenades, and an RPG, after which he will go die. And while we destroy him, he will still fire a shot in our direction. End quote. Chernik used what could be described as a video game analogy in the end, saying, quote, Three savages ran at us, and now there are six. End quote. An editor's note here. Some soldiers aren't getting guns, let alone assault weapons. It is stunning to me as a U.S. American that I could buy 10 civilian semi-automatic AK-47s tomorrow, and Russia can't arm 300,000 troops. Though, to be fair, I have been told that that is a uniquely U.S. American experience. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Kirillo Budinov, head of the Chief Intelligence Directorate of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, reported that the recently returned Ukrainian prisoners of war had a wide range of experiences in captivity, with some repeatedly and ruthlessly tortured. During a press briefing, he told reporters, quote, Their condition varies drastically. Unfortunately, that's true. Some of them are physically more or less fine except for being chronically malnourished. Others have endured particularly cruel torture methods. End quote. Budinov explained that who was tortured, why, and how was arbitrary. People were not singled out due to their rank, unit, level of involvement, or other characteristics. A couple was killed in Nikopol when a grad rocket fired by Russian troops struck their home as they slept, killing them instantly. Another nine civilians were wounded in the overnight rocket attack, which targeted a residential area. The DNR accused Ukraine of shelling the center of Donetsk, killing up to six people and destroying a bus. On social media, some people, including those that support DNR leadership, accused Russia of committing a false flag operation and being responsible for the attack. We can't verify the veracity of any of the claims, but we can confirm that six civilians died needlessly and horrifically in the center of Donetsk. An employee with Kharkiv Oblanerho was killed and two more injured when a landmine exploded in recently liberated Kharkov, east of Kharkiv. The men were working to re-establish natural gas service when the mine exploded. The use of landmines is not in and of itself considered a war crime, but the rules that outline their proper use make them nearly impossible to deploy without then committing a war crime. Belligerents must map the location of landmines 
and share that information at the end of hostilities or after retreating from an area. In economic news, the ruble improved again, with an exchange rate of 58 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices continued to drop, with WTI crude falling to $82 a barrel and Brent falling below the $90 mark to $89 a barrel. RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was at $2.45 a gallon, or $0.65 a litre. Chicago SRW wheat futures held steady, trading at $8.96 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.